0: With that said, um, let me ask you if you will turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21 will be the text of this morning's message. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to um, just tell you how I personally feel about what's going on in our church. I'm I'm excited um, in a couple of ways, and that is I'm excited to see that there is a... a, a, um, a growing energy to see our community impacted by Christians. And City Hope was kind of spawned out of that. And you can't point to any one person and say they made that happen. It's just the Lord is working. And at the same time, there's this, this desire and hunger to just be renewed back into the center of the gospel, when, which in one sense is, is amazingly simple, and yet it's deeper and more profound than the deepest ocean. Um, never come to the end of it, which is why we're in this book called Galatians, Um, and we're in the end of of chapter 2 this morning. Um, On a bit of a uh, um, heavier note, I thought it would be good for us before we um, pray and and look at the Word to just take a couple of moments to pray for our our believing family over in the Philippine Islands. Uh, I know that we have... uh, Filipinos who are part of our church congregation and family who probably are a bit nervous about what took place over there. If you haven't heard, I'm sure you have. It's like the storm of the storms, and um, hundreds of people have died. So would you take a moment to just pray for uh, maybe their family or pray for our brothers and sisters over there, or just the opportunity that God might um, bring his word in a greater way through this tragedy? Will you take a couple of moments and just bow your head and pray um, for that uh, tragedy? Lord God of heaven, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of David and Jeremiah and Isaiah, God of Jesus and Paul and Peter, You are our refuge and our strength, very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at the sight of them, Lord, you are our fortress. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Lord, we pray for faith and um, for perseverance on the part of those of our church family who are over there um, suffering and anxious. And we just ask that you would preserve their faith. We pray for relief. We pray for um, peace. We pray for opportunities for your word to go forth. Lord, you are the God of the storm. Um, and you are also the God who um, cares for the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. You care about the individual, and you care about the child, and you care about those who have been hurt. So in the mystery of those two things, Lord, we ask for you to be merciful. Lord, I pray that um, those of us here who are gathered this morning by the by hand of God, um, it's not by accident we're here, I pray that you would speak to us, and I pray that you would open the windows of our souls, to see the gospel in a way that, for lack of words, just blow our hearts away. Lord, we want to see Jesus exalted and lifted up. We want to know that he is the beginning, middle, and the end. He's the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist. The whole of history centers on him, and the whole of history will be brought to conclusion by him, and we look to that great and awesome day in which he comes back and makes all wrongs right, and he restores order to this universe and um, gives life to a new creation. The Lord, uh, speak to us, please. I pray that you would use my lips to do so and, and um, that you would grant understanding, and, and in that understanding, uh, a deeper faith. And I pray this in, in Jesus' holy name, amen. I love it, um, talking to some of our college students when they come back from being away at university, especially secular university and college, and, and uh, to hear some of the conversations that they're having with people in their dorms and in their classrooms of, uh, who don't believe in Jesus, um, some of whom are agnostic, others are atheists, some are Mormons, and, and in one particular case, um, spoke to a young man a couple weeks ago, he's been rubbing shoulders with, a, with another young man who's a Buddhist. And um, from the way that um, this young Christian man describes him, a very, very kind and well-intended, and, and uh, just a nice person to be around, but someone who's committed to the way of of, of the Buddha. And um, and this young Christian man, of course, is committed to the ways of, of Jesus. And they've been dialoguing, which I think is such a such a healthy thing for God's people to do is is to not be afraid to dialogue and and know that our our gospel, our truth, what we believe, is robust. It's it's um, it's persuasive. Uh, it's deeply rooted in history. It's deeply rooted in revelation that's taken place over fifteen hundred years, and it works. Anyway, um, my uh, the, this this young man was, was was sharing this with me about his Buddhist friend, and, and one of the things that came up in the conversation was, you know, how can we fix the world? So here is a Christian and a Buddhist side by side. How do you fix the world? And the Buddhist said to this college friend of mine, said, Well, you know what the world really needs is more compassion and love. To which the young Christian would say, well, pff, I kind of believe that too, you know. I mean, at the, at the bottom of the law Jesus taught us, the bottom of the law of Moses is, is love. He says it's all summed up in a single word, and that is love. And he taught us that the greatest commandment, of course, is one in two parts, and that is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the Apostle Paul said in no uncertain terms that the greatest of the Christian virtues of grace is, is not faith, it's not hope, it's actually love. So at one sense, at one level, a young Christian college student would have to say there's some similarities between me and the, this Buddhist friend of mine. And, um, and by the way, um, just so we're clear, when we talk about other t- truth claims or other religions, I, it's not a disparagement of that particular individual who holds to that teaching, we have to be able to separate it in our minds, um, the individual versus what he believes, and to be able to talk about these things without feeling like we're attacking this person. Um, and if you can't do that, which is our culture has really collapsed those two things where if you start talking in any critical way or challenging someone's truth claims, they take it personally, as if it's a personal attack. And if that collapses, it's hindered our ability to speak and dialogue. If, if you can't talk about the truth in a way that that is not disparaging to the individual or keeping those separate, there's nothing to talk about. Nothing. We can't talk about anything if, if disagreeing is going to, you know, um, is going to be taken personally. But in this particular case, um, this young man uh, was wrestling with the similarities of, of his Buddhist friend and his own Christian beliefs and wondering what's the difference. And I think that process is a good and healthy process, spiritually and intellectually, if if you're really thinking through it on a biblical level because new discoveries are to be had when you think through what are the similarities but what are the differences. So this young Christian man was telling me this and I said, well, tell me this. According to your Buddhist friend, who is not a Buddhist theologian, but just a, you know, kid who's committed to Buddhism, um, why, critical question, why is your Buddhist friend committed to a life of compassion and love. What's underneath it? And this, uh, this college student said, and, and he did it so quickly, which led me to believe he actually, they talked about it. Um, he said, well, um, my Buddhist friend believes that if you, if you love people and show compassion, that um, it will lead to a, a better or good karma. That is um, an idea of personal advancement or personal enlightenment that's experienced because you do good. So." In essence, what's underneath the, at least in teaching, a life devoted to love and compassion is the desire for personal advancement underneath. Now, let me ask you, stepping away from the conversation with a Christian college student, what is it that should drive the Christian to love and compassion. Where does it come from? Because I believe the answer to that question shows that while there are similarities on the outside, there are vast substantive differences underneath. Why do we do what we do? Because truth be told, you could have two people, a follower of Jesus, and you could have a follower of the Buddha, both working in Burma, um, taking care of orphans. Good things doing the same exact activities, changing diapers and feeding, doing the exact same things, but for very different reasons. And if we understand the why behind the Christian faith correctly, then we get to the very heart of the gospel and what makes God's people tick. And it's different. It's not the desire or drive for personal advancement. It's something else. And I believe these these few verses here in Galatians chapter 2, 19 through 21, articulate what you might consider to be like the, the blood life of, of the Christian. Um, why we do what we do and what makes it possible, what makes it different. Now, 19 through 21 is really kind of the second half of one paragraph. I mean, the first part that we looked at a long time ago, which was three weeks, um, Paul laid out the gospel of the fact that we were justified or were set right, by God, and with God um, on the basis of faith in Jesus alone, not on the work basis of any accomplishments that we do, period. And then he dealt with two particular perversions of the gospel, one of which says, okay, well, if I'm saved by Jesus alone, then I can go ahead and live however I want, which is a perversion, Let us sin that grace may abound. And the second one is, well, um, in order to keep myself from sliding into a liberal life, I need rules. I need a law to live by and to to grow in. and, And that, too, is a perversion. And then we come back to here, verse 19, where he kind of gets into the nitty-gritty of of what it means to be a Christian. Verses 19 through 21. Let me read it for you. Many of you have this memorized. It's a a well-known portion, perhaps the best-known portion in Galatians. He writes, working. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, you'll notice in these words behind me, maybe in your Bible in front of you, the idea or concepts of death and life permeate these verses. They're kind of the context or the framework, death and life. The Christian life kind of is centered on these ideas of death and life, in particular, the life and the death of Jesus. Now, in verses 19 and the first part of 20, a little bit difficult to understand, but we have one of the distinctive aspects of what makes the Christian truly free, to live unto God, and that is death. Or, in my own words, we live to God, live in relationship to him and for him freely um, by sharing in the death of Jesus. That's 19 and first part of 20. Again, you'll notice death and life are in these two verses. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Then he goes back to death again. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, it's kind of ironic right here, this first part, verse 19, because Paul says here that um, he died to one thing so that he could live to to God. Ironically enough, in order to truly live unto God, the Christian must experience death. It runs a little bit contrary to what uh, Patrick Henry said once, that famous quote, give me liberty or give me death, which in its own political context is is an encouraging one or motivating one, but... But here Paul is saying, in order for us to live a life of liberty and freedom to God, we must die. Give me liberty by giving me death. And in particular, the death um, that we share with with Jesus. Now, you'll notice that the first part of verse 19, it says, For through the law I died to the law. And that's a bit of a a brain teaser. Um, So allow me for a moment to explain what I believe that means to the best of my ability. When Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about basically the Ten Commandments with all of its 603 add-ons through the law. So through the Ten Commandments, I died to the Ten Commandments. And it's things like this that kind of give Paul a bad rap in the church because you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, What what does that mean? I think it means at least two things. One thing is that is that the only thing that the law can do to us fallen human beings, all it can do is tell us we're seriously jacked up, seriously messed up, in serious need of a deliverer. That is all it can show us really is our flaws. Through the law, God revealed that we are in fact hopeless sinners and we cannot deliver ourselves by keeping the law. I mean, if I was to go around, have a show of hands, As to who of us actually even kept one of the Ten Commandments, I think most of us would strike out entirely, especially if we understand the law in light of how Jesus understood it, and that is if you lust with your mind, you've committed adultery. I could go one through ten. Have you ever lied? I think most of us would say yes. Have you ever coveted? Have you you ever hated somebody in your heart? Because that, Jesus says, is is murder. And we probably just go through and go, wow, I'm feeling really horrible right now. Well, that's what the law does. It, it makes us realize just, just how, 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 how messed up we are. And not just in terms of revealing our sin, but he will also go on to say in other parts of what he's written to say it actually incites us or intensifies our desire to sin. Not because the law itself is bad, but because our hearts are so deeply rebellious of being told what we can and cannot do. Um, We know this by human experience. Tell your little eight-year-old boy, do not take that cookie off the counter. What does he want to do as soon as you say that? He wants to take the cookie off the counter. Maybe you want to drop a couple pounds, and you decide, I'm going to do a diet, South Beach Diet or Jenny Craig, or maybe you do the old out-of-date Atkins Diet. So you decide, you know what, in order for me to achieve my, my goal weight, I'm going to establish some rules for myself. Thou shalt not eat garlic bread any longer. And then over the course of the next few days and weeks, what happens? You want the garlic bread. I mean, it's just, you set it up and immediately, because you can't have it, you want it all the more. And he says that law did that too, just to show what's what's in here. So in one sense, it just reveals the fact that not only are we sinful, but we're deserving of death. But, Embedded into this law itself was also the idea of sacrifice, redemption, and atonement. So you'd bring your goats and your sheep, and you'd see them slain before you, and, and at least in a symbolic way, your sin transferred to that animal, and then that animal killed on your behalf. And then you'd go through the process over and over and over again. And this way, the law also anticipated a day when there would be a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. An atonement to end all atonements, and a a redemption to end all redemption. And that, of course, points us to the perfect, flawless Lamb of God who gave himself for us. And in that way, the, 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 the law itself pointed us towards the one who would completely satisfy and fulfill it. And render it no longer an operative authority in terms of condemnation in our lives. That is, when Jesus came and lived and he also died, he served the sentence of death that you and I deserved. And in some mysterious way, this is what he says here, in some mysterious way, when we trust in Christ, God looked upon his son when he died and saw our death. He saw the punishment that you and I deserved, the sentence, he saw it carried out in full. And when the sentence is carried out in full, there's nothing left over. There's nothing left. That means the Christian, in relation to this moral framework of the law, or you could have a moral framework of another religious organization or system, is the Christian is no longer underneath or bound by the authority to condemn the dominion, the realm of the law. We're freed from it, freed from condemnation. Now, I was thinking about how do you you get your head around this, you know? And um, forgive the political... um, controversial nature of it, but, you know, Edward Snowden over there in Russia, you know, deep, deep doo-doo here in the United States, right? Whatever you may think of him and that particular issue with the NSA and so forth, the fact of the matter is we can't touch him in Russia. We have no jurisdiction there. Um, At least we shouldn't uh, try to do anything over there. That is a realm all in its own. We can't touch him. We have no authority, no jurisdiction. He, for all practical purposes, is is uh, is free, free from the domain. And it's interesting to think that when Jesus died, and we trust in Him, that His death became our death. So no longer does the this thing, the law, hold um, authority over us anymore. It can't touch us. I mean, that's one of the things death does. He said, "I died the law here, by way of being crucified with Jesus." that if I was to die tomorrow, then the things of this present order could no longer affect me. The IRS can't tell me to pay more taxes. Cancer can't touch me because I'm already dead. No more colds, which I'm struggling with right now. That is, I'm completely outside the realm of influence of this present order once I die. And, And he's saying in no uncertain terms, You, my friends, are free from that realm. Now you're supposed to live that way. Now I realize that this sounds maybe theological and theoretical, but I tell you um, that to believe the truth of it is not theoretical. It's very powerful and it's very real. Most of us, how do I say this? Most of us know with our heads that we have been freed from the condemning domain of law. God doesn't say, you're bad anymore. He says, I've, I've sent it's carried out for you, so you're free. But many of us still choose to live in its confines. Sometimes it's out of fear. Fear of thinking, does this Jesus thing really work? Is it Christ alone? And the idea of living a life that's not based in law is a very scary reality. feel like maybe it doesn't work, which would be another reason. Simply disbelief. You don't really believe that our salvation was won for us in Jesus, and he's really freed us from that law. Um, Others of us um, prefer to live within the cage because we're control freaks. And the idea of relying upon another person rather than... Things that we can manage, and one of the things rules allow us to do is it begins or allows us a, a level of human management. And so we can't I, trust the idea that it's been completely simply done for us. And yet, on a more personal note, I think another thing that we often, what often keeps us in the in the cages, is uh, violations of our own conscience. Most of you in here know the Bible, and you know the rights and you know the wrongs. And we have this little mechanism that God graciously put inside of our souls called a conscience, which tells us, doesn't tell us, teach us truth, but it does tell us when we're wrong. You know, so you're working on the car in the garage with the wrench. The bolt just won't give, and finally it does give, and you slam your hand, and your little boy comes in going, hey, Daddy, and starts talking to you, And you just don't want to talk to your kid at that moment because you're really angry, and so you burst out with some kind of a, an angry word, and you watch the face of your son just fall. Now, you and I know, biblically, that that kind of outburst of anger towards somebody is wrong. And our conscience is saying, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong. And what do you do? Well, you feel horrible about it. That's your conscience. And you know, the scripture says you shouldn't do that. And what is it more often than not we do when we feel that way? Oftentimes, we'll come to the conclusion, usually reason something like this. How can I be a Christian and do that? Like, I can't believe, that like, there's nothing godly about that response. And you could, a whole list of things that many of you struggle with. And then from there, we come to the conclusion or live under the cloud of, man, I just, I know I must be, God must be upset at me. He must be angry with me. And we put ourselves inadvertently back into a place of condemnation. And, 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 I, and I, there's, a, there's a time to confess sin and there's a time to, you know, to own up to our responsibility, say, I'm sorry, and ask forgiveness and so forth. But we need to remember that, good night, once Jesus died for us and we trusted in him, um, we're not back in that cage ever. No, once for all, done. The sins of yesterday... The law has no jurisdiction to condemn me. The sins that I do today in thought, the law has no jurisdiction to condemn me. The sins that you commit this week, the law has, if you're a believer, has no authority again to condemn you. You are free from that. And to live in that reality, because I think we walk around with that cloud over our heads of self-condemnation. And man, if Jesus has separated us from that by nature of us dying with him, then we should live in that freedom of his death. So here you have this first part. Part of the uniqueness of the Christian life is we've been freed, not because we've done anything, but Christ died and we trusted in him. And as a result, we died with him and we're free. But then he switches In verse 20, now talking about now life. If we died in Christ, verse 20, he's talking about the life we now have in Christ. We live to God, this is my summary again, by the indwelling life of Jesus. If we died with him, he gives his life to us. Verse 20 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, or a better translation would be in the body, which is where we're living right now, I live by faith in the Son of God. He said it's no longer I who live, and in the original that's emphatic. It is no longer me, the egotistical, self-centered, self-righteous, me at the center of the universe, that person doesn't live anymore. Uh, he is a shadowy Irritating reflection of who I really am now in Christ. Still has influence, but I, that old fallen person, no longer live. But he says, our life, the new life we have, is Christ who lives in me. And the vocabulary here, Christ in me, I think is unmistakable. He's talking about Christ by way of his Holy Spirit lives in us. Christ lives in me. That's the new me. That's the redeemed me, the regenerated me. That's the the me that's been brought to life as Christ lives in me. The me that God is is creating to perfectly reflect himself in his image. That's the me, Christ living in me. But it's his life living in us. And if you are a follower of Christ and you have trusted in him, you have even a sliver of faith, a mustard seed, then you have died with him, and he does live in you. And you can see it begin to manifest itself in new hungers and new desires, a desire for righteousness, a desire for for more of Jesus, a desire to read the Scripture not because you have to, but because you get to know him better there. A desire that hates sin, repulsed by it, even though the old man still wants to influence us. But this new life that's generated, a life that will grow Plant a seed in the ground and water it, it grows, and it grows towards the light. If you have the life of Jesus in you, it is growing. It is there, and it is changing you. God will not leave you in a place of unchange if you have his life in you, the spirit of Jesus. But again, um, back to the opening dialogue between the Christian and the Buddhist. Our life doesn't emerge from us. It's Christ's life in us. It's his spirit in us. Notice this, death and resurrection are so much a part of the Christian life. Here you have it brought up again, figuring into the practical outworking of of our lives as believers. That's the source. We've died with Christ, and Christ now lives in us, and it's his life that we rely upon. His life. That means you're not in the driver's seat. It's his life in you. Jesus isn't someone you manage. His life is in you. Your job is to yield to him and trust him. And you'll notice one of the chief ways in which this new life directs itself is right here in the text. When he says, but Christ who lives in me and, there's an and there which means it connects, and the life I now live, that is this new life, I live in the flesh or here in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is this new life of Christ within. Uh, Jesus becomes the object of our faith and the focus of our hearts. That's it right there. So see, it, it's in black and white. It's, it's, it's um, The life that Paul lives is not focused on law anymore. It's not focused on human performance anymore. He says that I live by faith in the Son of God. He's the new focus of my life. He is the object of faith. And I, I'm sure Paul looked back and went, Man, I had it all wrong. I was focused and my faith was in what I could perform. But now I live a new life. The new governing principle of my life is is Jesus. And I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna trust his life within that he is gonna complete what he started. New life within no longer reliance upon law to take us somewhere, but actually re, re, uh, um, resting in the Christ and the spirit of Christ in us to take us in a direction we want to go. So here's the, you know, we, we've died with Christ, and Christ's life lives in us. That's two parts of it. And I said, I told you that many of us know these things, but again, in practice, I think sometimes we betray a different belief. Example. This didn't happen. So this is completely hypothetical. No, you know what? Let me just say a young man confesses to a group of, of brothers, Christian brothers. I have a gambling problem, and it's affecting my wife, my children, and my job. He's acknowledging a problem, which is a good thing. Is it a sin? to be addicted to and um, unwisely spend money, yes. He's confessing because he wants help, which is a good thing. Now, in your experience, where most of the time do we as fellow believers, as part of the family to a young man like that, where do we point him? And in my experience, more often than not, we tend to point that young man to something that he must do. There's a place for doing, but that's typically where we go first. And so, we say things like this, brother, what you need is accountability partner. Nothing wrong with an accountability partner, but the best that that can do is create social restraint. It does not transform the heart Or someone has financial issues, spending more than they earn, and they've racked up all kinds of debt. It's a problem. I think the Bible would probably call that a a subset of greed. Confesses it. Oftentimes, where do we point first? You need to go to a seminar. Nothing wrong with seminars. They're good. We need education. Or we'll say, you know what? You need to take your credit cards and freeze them to your freezer. Or cut them up. Decent advice. But that's often where we point. But you know what? True transformation, what changes our hearts for long term so that it's not just a behavior that's changed, but it's a heart that's changed, is found right here. Is coming back to the simple fact that Christ died for me, and therefore I have died. And to remember that, and to live in that freedom. And coming back to recognize that, that His life is in me, and I want to rely upon that life. Perhaps the reason that there's a sinful addiction to begin with as he took his eyes off Jesus as the centerpiece, as the focus of his faith and his heart. In either case, I think the main answer is the same. We come back to the gospel that changes life. And that is back to Christ, to his death and to his resurrection. And then there's one final piece in here that I've, I see. And that is the motivation for the Christian life. And that is the last part of verse 20. And that is... he. To reread verse 20 here, he says, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who. And you got to just keep in mind, like, who Paul is in his, his history. And before you read this, you know, the guy who had his eyes open and realized, Man, I was a brutal, wicked persecutor of the one who gave himself on the cross. I was so wrong and deserved nothing but a blast from hell. And he goes on and, and he says, that his life is lived by faith in the Son of God. Why? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. You can't help but feel the amazement and the wonder of it. That you loved me and gave yourself for me. Brad Van Toll at our, our men's retreat showed a really good chronology of Paul's life and showed that he never stopped seeing himself as the chief of sinners. And then at the same time, never stopped wondering and being amazed and astonished over the simple fact that Jesus loved me. And he gave himself for me. And this, I believe, is underneath his, his life, is what generated this desire and passion to live out his life of love and writing books and wandering through the, the Mediterranean planting churches. Because he just couldn't get away from the compelling love of Jesus, Second Corinthians chapter five. It is the love of Christ that compels me. And you know what? When when Christianity, when, when we stop losing sight of the fact that each of us is a despicable sinner and that Christ loved us in that state and then brought us out of that state, and then gave himself up for us in that state, when we don't do that, we fall flat on our faces. But when our mind's eye is set on the simple fact that, man, I mean, look at it. Everything revolves around Jesus here. It's it's, it's, it's in his death. It's in his life and now in his love. The governing principle of Christian life is Christ and Christ alone. I think perhaps maybe this verse was in mind when Stuart Townend wrote, In Christ Alone, and he talks about, in the Here in the death of Christ I live, and here in the life of Christ I live, and here in the love of Christ I stand. It all comes from this. And to have the hearts to believe it. It creates and generates unspeakable um, gratitude and joy and peace and love and patience. But this is it. This is, this is simply put the, the, the core of what we believe. And it's what separates. Why do we do what we do? Why should we do what we do? Why, why go run a turkey trot on Thanksgiving morning so you can support Mission Solano wearing one of these really cool shirts? Maybe it's because you're free. Maybe it's because his life lives in you. Because he loved you and gave himself for you and and you just simply want to live it out. Live out what you first received. See, at the end of the day, we do what we do because he loved us first. Graciously and deeply and sacrificially. And to to know that in your heart changes life. And that's where the root and the bottom line for the Christian comes from. It's where it comes from, right here. The death of Christ, life of Christ, and the love of Christ. Is that where you live? Is that where you live? Is that something you do once, once a month, you remember it at Christmas and Easter? Or is this life-giving truth that you have died in Christ and so you're free, His life lives in you right now, So you're progressing. And to know the love of Christ that defies description and to see him just produce those fruits in your life which only he can do. That's, my friends, what the gospel does. Do we believe in it? And if you're here and you don't believe it, listen, Christianity is not a set of rules we live by. Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus who died for us, gave his life to us, and loves us. That's the bottom line. And that is... Is what you need to believe. And watch Him take root in your heart and begin to change your heart so you know, wow, I am forgiven of all this stuff. And I feel life in me again. And I can't believe the love of Christ is so deep. And for those of us who maybe have a mustard seed side of, size of faith, you know where your faith is going to grow? You just got to keep feeding yourself upon the truth of who Christ is and what He's done for you. And you will see a change. And the explanation of that change will be nothing short of, it was Jesus. That's it. I would pray for that for us, that we really believe this stuff, and we really see that it does work. Ben Jandreau, hearing his story, you know, he was just exciting to see that this gospel works its way out in life. And, um, man, this is where we need to be so that we can be what we need to be for our community and our city. Amen. Lord, make this a reality in our hearts. Um, oh, gosh, just to live in the freedom of knowing that we're outside the realm of, of condemnation again and living freely and Christ living in us. And just once again to, to revel in the simple fact that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us um, so that we might be his and he might take us home. Thank you, Lord, for what you're already doing, and we pray you'd continue to do it. Humble us. Give us a, just a... A lack, a complete lack of confidence in human things, and and give us great confidence and faith in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand?